0: I'm here with John, and today we're going to discuss uh, C.S. Lewis's uh, *Perelandra*. Um, I think it's the second in uh, the trilogy. And uh, in, in *Perelandra*, then John, tell run a, run down the story just a little bit uh, for us. What's the what's the main thing? that's happening? Okay.
1: yeah, maybe uh, since it is a trilogy, we could even talk about what he's doing overall, the background to a bit. C.S. Lewis, uh, actually during World War II, begins writing a space trilogy. And he does so because Tolkien, J.R.R. Tolkien and himself, decided that there weren't any good science fiction books that they liked to read. And so Lewis would write one on space, and Tolkien was supposed to write one on time travel, but he was a much slower writer and never got around to it. Lewis, on the other hand, finishes a whole trilogy of space books for uh, his, their science fiction genre, entrance into science fiction. In the first one, they all three have the same character in them, though he is more the focus of the first two. In the second one, he uh, doesn't take the main plot in the third book. But in the first two, you're, you meet this professor of philology, Dr. Ransom, and he ends up being abducted and taken to what you eventually find out is Mars, and he meets the life that's on Mars, and he also comes in contact with what is known in the books, and I hope I am saying this correctly, but an Oyarsa?
0: And, um, yeah, maybe the the fact that, you know, Tolkien is a philologist. Uh, <laughs> now, and, now, in
1: the beginning, Lewis says he's none of the people in the books correlate to anybody even if you might think that
0: <laughs> <laughs> so they're all very interested you know both lewis yes, and yes, tolkien yeah. are very interested in philology and of course i noticed that in the uh in the introduction tolkien is commending to the publisher that yes mr lewis has done a fine job with the the philology it seems true and they're both, of course, very uh, fascinated with mythology. Yes. And so that comes out. But anyway, go ahead with yeah. your story.
1: So he meets up with Enoy of Mars, or as it's known in the um, first book. Oh, and the name is escaping me. Um,
0: out of the silent planet. Well, the silent
1: planet is Earth, of course. And, yes, in the name of the first book, he's on Mars. I'm trying to think of the word they use, and that's terrible that it just – I just lost it. But he meets uh, this O.R. who is an angelic figure. And at this point, you fully understand that Lewis isn't writing about a separate universe, but he's writing about this universe from the perspective of a Christian, and Dr. Ransom himself is a Christian. And so these themes are still in effect, but what you get is what would Christianity look like or what would the truth of the universe be created by God if you viewed that from a place other than Earth. And so that's a part of the story. Well, that sets you up for the second book, Paralandra, where Dr. Ransom is sent by this angelic being from Mars to Venus, or Paralandra. And he's not for sure why he's being sent there, but he's for sure that it's a mission that Malaville or God has sent him on, and that he's quite capable of accomplishing this. So he's Travels there in what is like a glass coffin of sorts, and he lands, and he still really has no idea what he is doing. And it's there that he very slowly comes to a realization of what his purpose is on Paralandra.
0: And he meets, in the beginning then, he meets uh, the the female of the pair. They're only two, they're human-like, creatures and let's uh, see what I've forgotten her name uh, uh,
1: she's just called the mother or the female uh, yeah. there, she isn't given a name a personal name or a
0: proper name and they both then will be given names both the king and the queen or the mother mm-hmm. and the father but we really don't meet the father figure uh, until uh, the end of the book we just know he's there and that uh, she's looking for him but they don't come together um, and so the 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 big maybe the big theological theme is at the end of the book, and I, I think that Lewis is is thinking of this all quite seriously. The the whole book is a kind of, you know, it it, it is really very much a, a reflection of Lewis's theology, mm. and I think we could critique parts of it, but the end of the book kind of captures what he thinks is the purpose of creation end of fall and redemption that you have these planets or you have creation uh but creation then seems to be uh, an ongoing that is that that god is going to create and there is a kind of i don't know if you would say it's uh in other words it's not that one creation is separate from another but what has happened on earth in other words they clearly reference christ and the the fall of man and redemption. And in fact, the main character's name is ransom. Yes. And of course he doesn't understand the significance of his own name until he understands his, uh, why he's been sent to Paralandra. Uh, and that of course is to ransom the, uh, pair, uh, from the evil one or from, you know, from sin, but the the end picture is kind of a beautiful picture of a kind of endless, you know, uh, process of, I don't know, what would you call it, generating creative love or something like that?
1: Yeah, uh, so the idea there seems to be along the lines that grace isn't something that just saves you from sin, but grace in some way involves a deification or a theosis, Is what I took for it. Time seems to elude them, even as ransom, is standing on the top of this mountain in the end with um, both these angelic figures and um, the idea of being in the presence of God or in the presence of the divine. And of course, on Paralandra, this isn't even as the result of being saved from sin in the sense that sin had already occurred in the world, but rather. this world has a different start than ours does because there is no fall on Paralandra.
0: And so the, uh, the, it's a perfect place. And, and a lot of the description is, I mean, uh, uh, that is that they're in, it's perfect in that there's no evil. It's not, you know, maybe the word perfect here, we run down for us, the biblical notion of perfection or the good. So
1: maybe the idea, uh, telos, of course, being the Greek word, but that, has references of achieving an end or obtaining a goal. And on Paralandra, that seems to be completely intact, that the people there are fully in communion with God's plan for their world, and there's no alienation between them and carrying out God's will. But that doesn't mean that the world is completely benign, and it doesn't mean that the world isn't still uh, dangerous in some senses.
0: And so what is, you know, the story is that evil is being introduced uh, into the world. Um, And, of course, that's why ransom is there, uh, is in some way to prevent this evil. And, of course, the evil comes in the form of this other professor. Remind me of his name. Uh, I I
1: hate that you ask. He's a chemist from the first book.
0: And is the guy that uh, he he's going to have a running conversation? Yes. In the beginning, and this is kind of I I, I really <laughs> I think this is part of Lewis's genius. You know that he's at Cambridge, he's at Oxford, and I think that he puts in uh, the the mouth of this character who will very quickly uh, become. Uh, we we recognize that it's it's no longer the it's no longer Weston Weston is his name yes yes it's no longer Weston but it's in fact the devil himself but in the beginning it's just Weston and in the in the mouth of Weston he puts what I assume is what Lewis is encountering among the so-called intellectuals at Cambridge and Oxford. And it's it is just the sort of drivel that if you go to a university today and you go to a philosophy or religion department, you're gonna hear the same <laughs> it never changes. It's always the same sort of uh uh understanding. And it's kind of this vague, you know, spirituality uh yeah. that uh that is at once recognizing you know, that there is some sort of spiritual aspect uh, to the world and that, of course, Weston imagines that he in some way is the conduit for this.
1: Yes, and I think what is even more telling is how Weston's position evolves. And then this is what's brilliant on Lewis's part because if reading all Lewis's works, more of his theological and philosophical works, too, you never really get the idea that, oh, Lewis has some way escaped or named modernity for what it is and moved past that. But in the character of Weston, he does. So Weston, in the first book, Out of the Silent Planet, has already been, Malacandra is the word for Mars, he's already been to Malacandra several times, and there, of course, uh, he's with another guy who is... Sort of an academic, but doesn't really hold any academic post. And his name is uh, Richard Devine, or Dick Devine, as he's known in the books. And he is there for just wealth. He's robbing the place blind, taking it back to Earth and making himself wealthy. Weston, on the other hand, wants to take over the planet and spread the human race throughout the universe. And the way he speaks is it's all about for the greater good and humanity has to go on and live on and humanity has to take over everything. And in that book, you encounter a lot of ideas of colonialism and confronting why colonialism and racism and slavery and those types of things are wrong and how... Uh, People have, under the guise of doing good for people, have enslaved whole populations for their own end or means. And Weston holds that perspective. Now, in the second book, Paralander, it's not as if Weston has given up that perspective, but now he has spiritualized it.
0: Yeah. And so
1: you're getting this modern perspective of, well, humans uh, are the greatest in the world evolutionarily just the greatest we're on top and so we can use everything to make progress happen and it doesn't matter who we have to exploit or what we might have to exploit to do
0: so in
1: the name of progress
0: let me give you a quote here this is weston Mm -hmm. speaking to uh ransom in describing his you know describing uh he says my own exclusive devotion is to utility. Mm. And he said, now he, he himself is saying that he's progressed beyond this. He says, well, it was really based on an unconscious dualism. What do you mean, he says? I mean that all my life I had been making a wholly unscientific dichotomy or antithesis between man and nature, had conceived myself fighting for man against its non-human environment. Of course, that's, I think, book one. Book yes. two, yeah. he's saying, oh, he's come to a greater realization. He's become a
1: Hegelian. It,
0: <laughs> that's it, what I thought when I yeah, was reading
1: it, actually. It is
0: just everything. This is, uh, this is just, Lewis is familiar enough with uh, so-called intellectualism to recognize that this intellectualism will always take two forms. and and he captures it here in Weston 1 and Weston 2. Weston 1 is caught up in the dualisms. Uh, Weston 2 is is caught up, you know, if you're thinking of a Derridian notion, identity through difference reduces to sameness. Now he's in the sameness stage, and he himself then is the conduit of Mm -hmm. spirit itself.
1: And interestingly enough, he's actually Satan.
0: Yeah, well, he, you know, at some point in this, uh, yeah. I mean, mean, Lewis
1: is so subtle, huh?
0: (laughs) This is the devil. This is the devil. And and I mean, you've got to admire that. And Lewis is familiar enough with, uh, you know, both mythology and philosophy that he understands he's giving Weston everything. Yes uh, that here is the finest of intellectual traditions it's either going to do identity through difference it's going to be the Hegelian dialectic or it's going to be and of course this is what Hegel reduces down to is a kind of uh, sameness or the world spirit. you know, as he said this i I wrote in a in a note that uh, that This sounds exactly like Kitaro Nishida. Hmm. Nishida, you know, describes a dualism. He says, you know, there's God and the devil, but he says, I am God and I am Mm -hmm. the devil, and I bring about a synthesis between the two.
1: Yes, I remember reading some Kitaro Nishida for your religions class. (laughs) uh, No, and that's right, and so Weston now hasn't worked beyond, oh, it's still a utilitarian perspective, but he thinks that it's all-encompassing. He thinks that he has the synthesis. He thinks that he has the answer. And somewhere along the lines in this part of the story, Weston disappears, and all you're left with is Satan.
0: Uh, yeah, and I <laughs> the, uh, it, it is a complete demon possession. Yes, yeah. And, Of course, that's part of the thing here is that when Weston becomes Satan, we're no longer. I thought this part was interesting. You know, that that this this figure, we're never quite sure what we're dealing with. And of course, Weston is himself
1: mm-hmm.
0: not sure what he's dealing with. Uh, is it? Is it a? Is it? Does it have personality, or is it just this thing? Yeah, yeah which is.
1: Betrayed so well that eventually Weston's body doesn't even need to look at Ransom when it speaks. It doesn't seem to know where he's at really, uh, but just can be close enough. And it's also interesting that at this point, the Satan figure Weston slash the demonic possessed Weston becomes less and less interesting. And I was so impressed by Lewis's ability as an author at this point, because in the story, of course, the Satan figure, Weston, is aggravating and irritating Ransom, almost to the point where he thinks, oh, I'm going to go insane. As I was yeah. reading it, I felt that aggravated.
0: Yeah, he, he's, he kept saying, Ransom, hey, Ransom. Yes. Yes. And Ransom would say, what? And he'd say, nothing. Nothing, yes. <laughs> And yeah. he does this endlessly. And so it's this, this you know, uh, yeah. it, it is this creature that he's dealing with. It is this thing. I, I think here, you know, when we think of a satanic figure, I think we often do think more in terms of, uh, uh, something personal than I, I, I thought this was a great betrayal. No, this is a thing. This is subpersonal. This is a, a force. You know, uh, if you want to, you know, if you want to give it a, uh, you know, put a pitchfork in its hand. And that, in some way, is to, you know, give it cloven hooves. That, in some way, is to trivialize what is done. And so, you know, that even in, in the, the move, you know, if we trace, this is, I think, the, the most interesting part of the book, is the transformation of Weston into this demonic figure. And the way that it begins is that Weston has this conversation, uh, you know, with Ransom, and uh, he he says, "God is spirit, mm. and everything, you know, get a hold of it." He says, "You know, Ransom, we agree on this. We all agree, yeah. God is spirit, yeah. uh, and that the whole cosmic process is moving then." Towards this spiritual freedom, again, it just sounds—you know—to say it sounds Hegelian. I don't mean it; it is just Hegelian. When we say Hegel, yeah. we've said everything in yeah. a sense. Uh, pure spirit, the final vortex of self-thinking, self-originating activity. Final, said Ransom. You mean? Yes, said Westham. I couldn't have believed myself till recently. Not a person, of course. Anthropomorphism is one of those childish diseases of popular religion. Uh, So God is not a person. God is a spirit. And the spirit is a force. A great inscrutable force pouring up into us from the dark bases of being. Man, you know, this could be Hegel, it could be Heidegger, it could be, you know, there. That if you're going to lapse into a kind of, uh, you know, if you're going to do a kind of human thought, uh, I mean, it may get a little, I, I don't know that it ever gets, you know, more, mm-hmm. this is about the end of, of human thinking. And
1: I think what's telling and what's interesting about, Weston from the book Out of the Silent Planet till now, what doesn't change is he is still the central authority for the way he perceives the universe. So though he's spiritualized what he is saying, the way he thinks about knowing has not changed to where he still thinks he holds all the answers, and he still thinks that he's going to, in some way, bring about these changes.
0: Uh, it, it is a move. You know, it uh from a kind of stupid, selfish, greedy to a completely evil person who becomes literally demonic. But if you were to, I mean, in the philosophical, theological conversation, uh, of course, what it seems to be is a more enlightened understanding.
1: I was actually thinking back to a conversation that we had recently about um, Augustine and theories of knowing, and that was the point Shavara is making you can You can be Descartes or you can even be Kant, and the yeah, other's differences there. And then Hegel comes along, and it may seem like oh we're really figuring this out, but at the end, if you look at it from like if we were going to take this apart from a point of Christianity or a Christian perspective, all three of these positions or the knowledge that we have has something in common, and that's that we're the sole authority of that knowledge. Knowledge for us is something we can obtain and manipulate and make work for us, and that's Weston to a T. And I think the flip side of this in Paralandra is the way – that ransom is having to think and reflect on what does it mean to know things and what is truth because while these well the conversation that you're referencing is just before what happens next this weston-like figure finds out the mother the lady of paralandra and even as ransom tries to teach her things and teach her to be afraid of weston and to stay away from him Weston or the devil begins to teach her things that are true, but they're true in such a way that they're bent and would ultimately lead to her giving up this direct link she has with Melodil, or God and breaking the commandment of you can't spend a night on the solid
0: land. And uh, yeah, the whole, and obvious, you know, at this point it becomes obvious that we're dealing with the re-temptation. Of an yes. Eve-like figure, yeah. uh, that he's he it, uh, the you know whatever the temptation is, and this is Ransom's point. You know when when sh- you know the devil or the the Weston is is talking that he says, well, the the point of this commandment is you've been given the freedom to obey, and. In other words, the the demonic figure is saying, "Well what, what, what is the point of this that you can't live on this island? you know why, mm-hmm. why do you what, I think God's holding out, or Maladil is holding out on you in some way. This would be your true freedom. In fact, Maladil, in fact wants you yes, to yeah. disobey his voice because what he's created you for is free will, and so you need to break through the commandment and arrive where Maladil really wants you to full maturity in which you are the true arbiter of your choosing.
1: Yeah, and so I think the question about knowledge is just implicit there. How do you come to maturity? Is it through the knowledge that you would gain by having the freedom of breaking God's commandments, the knowledge of good and evil perhaps, or is there another way to be brought to maturity, one that's in line with
0: obedience to God's plan? And, of course, that's the, in the story, she never, there is no fall. And what we get is, well, no, actually, there is a more beautiful way, a more fulfilling way. Uh, and so at the end of the book, they're going to refer back to Earth, uh, and they're going to say, well, you you mean that, you know, Ransom thinks that, uh, that what we have in the final ages, you know, is that the world, and of course their point is, that's not the final ages in that sense, that's only the beginning, that that there was a false start, there was a false beginning, things did not get off, and, and so there was this kind of stumble, and then once you get past that, you have the real beginning.
1: And, of course, the more cosmic view of that, which I think is explained in Out of the Silent Planet, is why is Earth called the Silent Planet? Well, it's because with the fall came a severing of ties with Earth and the rest of the cosmos, so all of the other planets are in some way linked and are in conversation and have been. And really we're thinking of the more ancient. So there seems to be a distinction between planets that had life started on them in ancient times and life that is being begun in more present times. So Paralandra, for instance, is just having life uh, being brought to fullness or to fulfillment in these people. And it's interesting that Ransom, while he's there, notices all these evolutionary links and says, okay, so it's not as if nothing's been going on here, but it's also a picture of creation that is intricate and um, just very deep because while he's noticing these evolutionary links, in no way is it denying that, God has been present working this out the whole time on Paralandra. You have this whole other set of planets that had a different kind of inhabitants and um, more animal-like inhabitants, but they're rational as well. Um, And it was in that time period that Earth becomes silent. The angelic figure that's supposed to be taking care of Earth or guiding Earth for Lewis has in some way tempted humanity on Earth to fall. And they said, not broken but bent and i think that's oh, yeah. telling as well about sin it's not as if humans are broken or that we have, our will is broken no the trouble is that actually it's bent so that we would continuously name what is evil as a good and pursue it
0: and that's what he calls the the satanic figure the bent one yes and i i thought the uh the the his picture of this the weakest of my people does not fear death It is the bent one, the lord of your world, who wastes your lives and befouls them with flying from what you know will overtake you in the end. If you were subject of malabdil, you would have peace.
1: Yes. And so these are the lessons that Ransom himself learns in the first book, Out of the Silent Planet. He gains a whole new way of looking at life from these figures, these creatures that are sort of like giant otters. (laughs) is what they seem to be like but uh, they're the Rasa uh, and they have a lot of wisdom but at first it seems like it's a primitive society and as Ransom spends time with them he realizes oh, there's nothing primitive about this but actually these people have self-control and discipline and obedience and peace in ways that humans don't because the same principles that are at work have been bent among humans
0: by the and, fear of death, and yeah, and, yeah the fear, and again, uh, Lewis, you got to admire him that that he seems to capture uh, that this is then the bent one uses the fear of death, uh, or in some way, death itself, as you know what he's get what it, the 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 evil one's trying to tempt her and and bring death then into this innocent planet as if death itself would be to penetrate to a depth of discovery and wisdom that they do not yet have. And so it becomes the, uh, you know, the, the, uh, I I think that in in Lewis's picture, uh, that that is the supreme evil is then to introduce death and then to ward off death. Now, there's a problem here in in Lewis's theology, and that is the way that he deals with the demonic Weston.:
1: Yes, as I was reading, I actually uh, I became very concerned for Ransom and what he was going to choose in the end, but uh, he chooses to take care of Weston by beating him to death. <laughs> <laughs> Which I I don't know. For me, it didn't feel like it fit very well, uh, necessarily with the narrative or with the first book out of the Silent Planet, because the death that occurs on Malakandra, one of these Rossas, killed by Weston actually, and it's a huge tragedy. And you're given a, this new way of looking at death, and you know there's really no place for violence uh, in this way on Malakandra at all, and yet ransom comes to think, Jesus died and saved us, and that was our ransom, so I'm going to beat
0: West into a cult. I, I don't know. It
1: didn't fit for me.
0: But. And I, I think it's not just a problem with the story. I think in the end that Lewis is, and you, again, you know, Lewis, it, it's his atonement theory. Uh, that he, he does have, you know, this is the problem, I think, in the Narnia tales, that he seems to have this notion you know, even in Narnian it's he's sort of doing it here of uh, a typical divine satisfaction or penal substitution, and so Maladil or you know the the ransom or the Christ figure uh, is in in some way going to employ violence and death, uh, not in the way that I think the New Testament would have us believe, but I think in the exactly the wrong. Way of that he's just going to beat this guy to death. Yeah, uh, and it was sort
1: of a letdown, actually. I, and it occupies quite a bit of the the book. Uh, he's chasing him, and it's a, it's a long struggle. And, what's you know, interesting? Oh, go ahead.
0: Oh, well, no, you go ahead. There.
1: I say what's interesting about it, and maybe this redeems it a little bit, is that while Ransom is doing this, he does still have some concern what if Weston is in there somewhere? Yeah,
0: yeah. So it's
1: one thing to do violence to Satan, but he he does seem to realize there is some problem with this if Weston is in there somewhere. He decides that he's not.
0: And it would, is never clear, is it? Yeah. No,
1: I And to make an excuse for Lewis, he is writing this in the midst of World War II.
0: And Lewis, of course, like... You know, in this sense you know the 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 war is a good thing in his mind, and doing you know this is a necessity, and so he does he keeps referring to young soldiers of England you know who are laying down their lives, and so th- that what uh ransom ends up doing is risking his life on the order of a soldier in battle doing mm-hmm. violence um You know, prior to this, the entire conversation had been uh, that he had been engaging in a dialogue, or not really a dialogue with the devil, but it had all been conversation and temptation. And and the devil, or the the Weston character, was just wearing him down after days and days. And he says, we have to put an end to this. And so the only... Only Andy can imagine it comes to him. Oh, he's he's a he's a pugilist, so he's going to have to <laughs> get in a boxing match uh, with the devil, uh, which uh, which fortunately it has only the strength of Weston, the middle-aged yes. academic. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. The other thing, you know, uh given that, the other thing I I'm curious as to your reaction John. You know, throughout of course Lewis is a great both Lewis and Tolkien uh both love mythology. And so he he I and and I'm not acquainted enough with mythology to understand but this is Tolkien's commendation of the book is that he's being true to mythological creatures and characters and of course Lewis's picture here is that mythology itself then is an echoing of a reality uh, of a truth that, you know, of what maladil or God is, is doing on a a kind of universal fashion. Uh, That is that there is truth to be found in the myth.
1: Yeah. I, uh, with them both and reading the similarion of um, Tolkien's and then these books remind me most, the space trilogy of Lewis remind me most of that because you have a cosmic picture of um, you have like a metaphysics to go along with the story. I'm not for sure that when they use myth, they would mean it in any way like say somebody Boltman would, Uh because for them, it's not even that there's myth, there's truth in this myth. But no, this is a true myth. And so it's almost as if what they're saying is that we can talk about truth through narrative. There's a narrative way of speaking about metaphysics. There's a narrative way of speaking about cosmology. There's a narrative way of doing theology. And while I realize in the way most academics today would use the word myth, that's not what they mean. That seems to be what Tolkien and Lewis mean when they're using the word myth. So, for example, with Tolkien, in his own writing, the Similarion, um, Silmarillion, or rather, um, as he's writing this, he gives you the whole cosmic picture of where Middle-earth comes from. And this is a myth for him. and in, But it's it's true to the story. In other words, it's mythology because perhaps it's not Uh, true in a real sense, in a real world sense. Tolkien is very emphatic. This isn't the Christian universe or something like this. It's something different. It's a different universe. But you have the same kind of ordering and hierarchy cosmology that you would have uh, in Christianity that actually is so similar to what Lewis is doing in the space trilogy.
0: So he has
1: angel-like figures. He has demonic figures. He has God. He has a creation taking a long time and being complex and sort of beyond our understanding. And he talks about light and darkness differently and movement differently.
0: uh, It's very
1: similar to what Tolkien is calling myth in his own works. But in the way Lewis is portraying it in the space trilogy, well, Lewis doesn't think that any bit of it's false or that there's only truth to be found in it. He thinks this is the way it would be if Mm -hmm. there were life on other planets. So uh-huh,
0: uh-huh.
1: He's giving an accurate picture of Christianity
0: through the myths.
1: Yeah, through through creating myths. But are they myths or are they? Is it fiction? I mean, what do you? You know, it's a little bit different, I guess, than uh, thinking of Rene Girard and his study of myth. Uh-huh. It's not quite as crude as oh, somebody was killed, and now let's abscond that in some way and create a story that absolves us of the violence that we did and now we're all idolaters. That's not what's happening in is writing.
0: Mm-hmm. And that's the, uh, I mean, that's the beautiful part of a book like, uh, well, th- throughout the, I, uh, Paralandry, I thought, in, in fact, I thought the first book was a bit clunky. Okay. Uh, uh but, uh, uh, but by the time you get to the second one, he's, he's describing, uh, a kind of, enchanted understanding of a, a Christian imagination. And of course, that's what Lewis yes. does for us, yeah. that here is a full-blown Christian imagination uh, telling us the, I mean, he's using fiction, but but actually I think he's trying to convey to us a depth of reality in and through the fiction, in and through the myth, if you will. Yes. Yeah. But we, we don't have access to, in and through our, as Lewis himself will put it, in and through a kind of flat earth sort of understanding.
1: You know, it's almost just allegory in mm-hmm. Paralandra. It's almost like you're just getting an allegorical uh, metaphor for how these doctrines work, according to Lewis. Yeah, yeah. I, You know, I think that's right. I want to say that Walter Hooper, who of course was Lewis's secretary for the last part of his life, and... Um, is the reason why we have C.S. Lewis got kept him in publishing and kept him in print. Asked Lewis, he they were talking about which book was the best and which was their favorite, and they both agreed that that hideous strength was the best of the three space trilogy books. Uh-huh. And as I'm reading it right now, it's definitely the best written. It's a little bit longer than the other two, and um, it's wonderful. It's complex. It's got more to it than the first two in the trilogy do. But I think they both said that Paralandra was their favorite book.
0: So. Yeah, yeah. That, that uh, And, of course, the, the what is the best about that hideous strength, I'm assuming, is the portrayal of evil. Yes.
1: the Yes, yeah. So, in the way that you have... It's a corporate evil. It's very boring. And, yeah, it's destroyed people's lives. So... Um,
0: And when I say that about all I meant with, uh, you know, obviously we're dealing with 1940s uh, technology, and so his picture of the rocket ship, you know, is something like, you know, somebody in the 1940s.
1: Yeah, well, even beyond that, I think just comparing Out of the Silent Planet with Paralandra, the storytelling is better in Paralandra than Out of the Silent Planet. Now, I think even of the – I really enjoyed Out of the Silent Planet because of the ideas that he brings up, but it's not as seamless. Uh I think as you go through it, it it does seem a little jumpy. And when you're introduced to the fact, oh, Christianity is going to play a part in this, it just really is very abrupt and things like that, whereas in
0: Paralandra,
1: it – it is more metaphorical or more allegorical in the way he's addressing theological themes,
0: and of course, in in *Out of the Silent Planet*, we we're still dealing with earthly figures, you know, in the beginnings of it, and so, uh, and and he's up front, you know, that Ransom is this Christian figure, mm-hmm. and and the other characters then are just modernists, or they're the scientists, or they're yep. the yep. the greedy, um, you know. Uh, Contemporaries, and and so it's like Lewis has sort of wrapped everything up into Weston. I, 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 you know, he what is he? He's a Cambridge Don or something. A philologist. Yes, yeah. uh,
1: Weston is a
0: physicist. Oh, you're thinking of Ransom's
1: the philologist? Oh, yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So they uh, the
1: philologist saves the day.
0: That's right. (laughs) That's right. By the time they get to Periandro. Weston has surprisingly, surprisingly learned the universal language. Yes. Uh, and so, uh, ransom is very impressed that he's, he, we never given an explanation, a very clear explanation as to why suddenly Weston yeah. has these linguistic abilities.
1: Other than demonic, uh, possession.
0: Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, that, uh, maybe that's the quickest way to uh, <laughs> get well, yeah, he's
1: talking about I, I've had these conversations with these beings and then I guess there are conversations in his head I don't know but yes he's
0: learned the language
1: of the universe um, the, uh,
0: the, so the, the main part of the book is you know the, he encounters and the evil he, and then he's sucked into this cave And we don't, you know, the cave in some way, they're out in the ocean and he's, he's in this blackness. Uh, And and of course, that's where he finally deals the death blow to who, at that point, it's sort of strange because it's like Weston is back Mm -hmm. and he's not, you know, Ransom himself is not sure. Whether, but but so he goes ahead and kills him <laughs> and then the the body is reanimated uh by this demonic force uh and so uh it, it's in the darkness of the cave and of course the the problem is uh that he's introduced you know, I, I, I mean, story storyline wise, death has been introduced into this planet. Yes, like uh, he even sets up a headstone. You know, he, yes. he spends days uh, writing a, a epitaph for Weston, uh, the man whom he assumes he did not kill. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, well, and I think that's interesting, and. Uh, uh, Actually, a very significant part of the story is he, Lewis, seems to be explaining how, what is the place of sin in the world or really how much power does evil have in regards to God's plan. And so you have this planet that's already been in existence for, I mean, to take it as long as any other planet in the solar system has been, but life has taken a lot longer to evolve here. And yet when it does reach the point where you have intelligent life, uh, you have the story of the fall again. But the fall doesn't work here. Ransom in some way overcomes that, but that's not the end of God's plan. And so it's as if the idea of evil or death, Weston's death, or um, just the death of the body animated by Satan, however we want to look at that, It really doesn't have anything to do with what the plan for Paralandra was. That was going to be brought to fulfillment one way or another anyway. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that actually fits very well with the way the early church thought about sin and uh, deception and what it means to be human and theosis, deification. And so, you know, somebody like Irenaeus, does he really have a concept of the fall? Well, not maybe in the way of the fall as being conclusive to why we need grace so the fall happens yes because we were immature and we were easily deceived and so that's going to be taken care of but the main point of Christianity for somebody like Irenaeus is that we would continue to grow and participate in God and come to the full maturity grow in the image of likeness of God something along those lines and I think you get that in the story of Paralandra.
0: You get it, and and again here, I think Lewis is, at some point, his, his theology and his storytelling come into conflict. Because the lady, the mother of the New World, asks about the death of Christ, and what was the purpose of the death of Christ. And even though the story is one in which these purposes are worked out more fully, His explanation to her about the death of Christ seems to locate it then simply to deal with the problem of evil. Yes. Now, I I was looking for that quote. am, Am I reading Lewis here wrong?
1: No, I think you're right. And so it's interesting. The way that he escapes it and the way you have this higher ideal is only from looking at what would God's cosmic plan be from, a standpoint that isn't from an earthly human, and so there is a tension there. You're right. I would say,
0: uh, yeah, the the Lewis's, you know, the the uh, he needed a better atonement theory, <laughs> <laughs> and and it's his his thinking, his imagination, is in some ways better than his theology. He's a better storyteller, yeah, I think so, in the end than a theologian. Uh, if his theology had, uh, I, I think he frees himself up from, he's better than his theology, uh, and that comes through. I think, as you're describing, is he's more Eastern Orthodox than he is Anglican, <laughs> uh, in the end, in his picture of the purposes of creation fulfilled in Christ. But he doesn't quite get that, and I think that shows itself, and he's just going to beat the devil to death. Yes,
1: so you're right, and it's not expressed theologically. It's expressed through the narrative of the story.
0: Yeah, yeah. And so if you could capture that, capture the idea that the death of Christ, and he does in some places, it's like this, the death of Christ, is bringing, you know, that here, that which is divine is brought to the level of dust and that God is inhabiting the world, Uh, and uh, uh, in in a sense, he, he... he, he does say that, um, but you when he actually is talking specifically about his understanding of the atonement, he tends to limit it uh, to the problem of sin, at least in, in, as I'm remembering mm-hmm. so, but. All right, well, that was uh, anything else about Perilandra? Oh, no, I don't know, I just highly
1: recommend that everybody read it.
0: Yeah, it was yeah. It's, a, it's a fun book. Uh, as I you know, we're doing the uh the book of Hebrews here and I think that what is happening in Hebrews is a reworking of human imagination, uh the idea of a re enchantment of mm-hmm. the world. Uh and I think that's what you have in somebody like Weston. Uh he He is in these enchanted, magical places and has not the capacity or the imagination to understand what what's happening
1: and that's portrayed so well in out of the silent Planet because he makes a complete buffoon of himself before the Oyarsa, or this angelic figure on Malacandra up Mars. He spouts off all sorts of imperialistic colonialistic nonsense about how he's so superior and has come to these poor and um you know poor and ignorant peoples of Mars and how he'll make life better for them if they'll just subject themselves to his overlordship and it's it's horrible. So yeah, yeah I think so. But that is a disenchanted perspective. And, uh, you don't yeah. allow for the other. You yeah. don't allow for
0: the personhood of the other. The other thing, I, you know, we talked about the evil of Weston. Maybe the last thing to say here is that uh, I think that, and this is to, to Lewis's credit, the, that he has this uh, marvelous picture of the, the sense of human, of embodiment. In other words, what he contrasts mm-hmm. to Weston's kind of Hegelian spiritualism is a strong sense of uh, human embodiment and I, I don't I'm not going to say human sexuality, but I thought you know at the end of the book when he's trying to describe Venus and Mars in mm-hmm. terms of their genderedness, mm-hmm. and he's talking you know this is that that here you have the the feminine and the masculine, and the way that Lewis per, portrays it, it goes beyond sexuality, so that the sexuality is itself then a pointer to a more you know a kind of you know broadened horizon of uh, that opens onto the divine perhaps or maybe that's too strong but
1: no but, I think so yeah
0: yeah it's good I thought he did that very well
1: yes, I think you actually get this in both books on just the concept of desire um, what does it mean to have desire and so the people of Mars. Uh, They experience life to its fullness, and they really take life seriously, more seriously than Ransom even was able to do at first. But they have control of their desire. It doesn't rule them. They would never think about um, identifying themselves with any one aspect of life that they just happen to find the most pleasurable or something Mm -hmm. like that. Uh, They're complete people. Mm -hmm. and you see Ransom's transformation as well throughout the books and he becomes a more complete person as he begins to understand these uh, differences and the differences again in uh, Paralandry you're always dealing with the difference between the mother and the father of the planet well like you said for most of the book you really only have the mother Mm -hmm. but in that it's not that oh here's a woman and you know of course, she's weak, so the devil picks her. That has nothing to do with anything. Uh-huh. Uh, rather, she is a person, and even as Ransom will constantly realize, well, she really doesn't know a lot about a lot of things, and she keeps uh, changing and coming to new knowledge. He begins to realize in a, mo- a lot of ways she has a wisdom that he doesn't have, or she has a connection to the divine that he doesn't have, and it's because of the way that the mother and the father of this world, Paralandra, have a complete connection or reliance upon God; that they're actually gaining information from God directly.
0: That they don't desire what they don't have. Yes. Yeah. And of course, that's the whole temptation—the devil or the the Weston's trying to get her to want something to live on this island. And her whole, yeah, you know, that's their discussion about fruit. You know, well, wouldn't you rather have one over another, or wouldn't you rather? Yes.
1: And so I think back to your point about Mars being the masculine and Venus being the feminine, uh, just psychoanalytically speaking, the inhabitants of Mars really are more masculine in this way. They don't desire anything more, but they're also not, they don't come to that conclusion in and through any type of questioning. Of what's going on it's just oh this is the way it is and actually there's a further there's a mediator directly there the angelic figure that lives on mars permanently between them and god Uh so they're content with their what's more of an ignorance actually and they're just content to be in the presence of god whereas in Paralandra, you have the same contentment but there is this more of a uh, working things out explorative questioning that's happening in the book it's characteristic of the two planets. I'm not saying it's characteristic of male and female necessarily
0: that the, uh, the uh on on Venus that she is able to entertain the idea of oh that's an uh, that's an interesting mode of thought that you would prefer yes. to something have something that you and, and of course it's a strange a strange mode of thought because she too is totally reliant. Yes. On and what I mean by that in no way is
1: Lewis saying that's the female perspective as in, that's only a perspective women have there's the father of the planet as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And there's
1: males and females on Mars, but they, whenever ransom asks them a question, Oh, that's not for us to know.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: Somebody else would know about that is what they're they always say the Sorns would know about that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah.
0: Yeah, that, that you know, in in Japan, of course, that's the uh, the the if you had to divide up men and women and their uh, relationship to the society, the men are very much defined by the rules and laws and 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 working with the company, so that their identity is is primarily with what they do. Uh, it's primarily work oriented, um, and the the women then. In, in that sense are able to to move horizontally in the society if not vertically in a more interesting way because uh they can question uh and and move about so you have stra- a strange thing here that people often look at women in Japan and they are in a sense they are kind of uh there there is a you know two steps behind sort of idea And yet it is the women who play the stock market who make the financial decisions in the home, who make, well, actually make all the decisions in regard to education of the children. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and so that, to my mind, I don't know if that's what Lewis Lewis was saying in his portrayal of all the concentration on the mother figure in Mm Paralandra. But she certainly is the... I don't know the, the more full-blown personality yes. in that book. Yeah.
1: And when I was referring to it more in the sense of his last comments, well, perhaps even the ancient people got this right. Why is
0: Venus a female and Mars is a male? Yeah. But run that thought, complete that thought.
1: Oh, well, I was just saying that in the way that he's portraying the two books, you're seeing, maybe you get, I, I really don't know enough about Lewis to know if he would have been aware of psychoanalysis to the point that he was doing this, but there is more of a masculine perspective in the first book, dealing with Mars, and more of a feminine perspective psychoana- psychoanalytically in the second book on Venus, but neither one is privileged uh-huh. in this sense, because on both places, there is an un- there's no fall, and there's an unbroken relationship to God.
0: Yeah, I mean the Lacanian understanding which I think I, I assume is a true reflection of Freud is that the in the feminine and and this is a kind of misunderstood thing about Lacan you know many people think he's actually uh, anti-feminine but actually I would say just the opposite he privileges the feminine in that it is the feminine that finds identity uh not in and through the law but in, uh, in in a sense that there is no questioning of you know the the idea of a uh, uh uh finding their place uh in that from which the law proceeds uh that where the masculine is that which is transgressive in, yes. in a Lacanian understanding yeah. the feminine is is uh need not be Transgressive—that the feminine I d as in the story of Perilandra, at least the feminine figure is quite content to identify with and and live within the boundaries which God has given. Uh, the feminine, in terms of Christianity, is is the better Christian in a way. Sure. Yeah. 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 I
1: don't that was—I'm maybe making a mountain out of a mole. I don't know <laughs> what Lewis exactly is doing there, but it's an interesting point.
0: It's been a wonderful conversation. Let's—shall uh, we do one more on uh, that hideous string? And uh, try to find. Uh, next-